Welcome. <clears throat> Welcome to Community Bible Chapel, and uh, thank you for your, your time here this morning. Six years ago, six months and 24 days, Jane and I got married. Jane had one more year of Bible school left, and we were up there north of Philadelphia. I was working full-time in the sheet metal HVAC industry, and I was youth pastoring part-time. And as soon as we got back from the honeymoon, I was laid off that construction job uh, that had won her father's permission to marry her at that time <laughs> because they didn't have another project lined up. Um, however, the Lord is in control. A form intervened, and about six weeks later, uh, they gave me work uh, way down in, in Delaware. But not long after that, uh, the one vehicle that we had was baptized, as any good Baptist does with his vehicles, um, and the engine was pretty much shot. Uh, the insurance company put a new engine in it, but there were some complications, and it wasn't working properly. And um, they tried to figure out what it was, and it, it literally took six months um, for them to figure that out and, and get it fixed. And so that, for that time, we, we didn't have a, a vehicle, and that was still while I was working long distances from home, and Jane was needing to go to school every day. About five years ago, on a Sunday, Jane and I drove down here to Dallas, not knowing anyone at all. We had no place to live, no jobs, only the commitment that in a few months I would have a nice big school bill to pay as I began going to seminary. Then our first semester of seminary came around, and as many of you will probably remember, Jane's appendix ruptured. And after a week in the hospital, they realized that they needed to do major surgery. They told us that they didn't know exactly what they would find when they went in there, and that there was, as with any surgery, the possibility that she wouldn't come out of it. Uh, that might sound routine, because that's what they often tell you for just about any surgery, but it doesn't really feel that way when you're the ones being told that. A little over a year later, uh, some of you will remember, there was a, a horrible tragedy in my immediate family, and a couple members ran off into sin, and two marriages were destroyed. A year after that, we were wondering why Jean had not been able to get pregnant. Another year or two later, as Jane was pregnant, we were wondering how that would work out with her having had her surgery. A year ago and 13 days, I was on my back being chewed to pieces by two dogs trying to kill me. I knew that they would kill me if I didn't get up off the ground. My head was in the dog's mouth and he was shaking me around trying to break my neck. And then finally, today I stand before you today. I've finished seminary, and the looming question is, what next? <laughs> Will the door for ministering in the church in Israel be open? Does the Lord still want me there, as it has seemed all these years, and that brought us here? And how can it come about when long-term visas are, are such a hard thing to come by there? And no doubt in your lives here this morning today, you've had circumstances like these and much harder. We've even heard mention of these and have prayed for some of them this morning in the worship service. Maybe you've been out of work for a long time. Maybe you're not sure how long your job will hold out or if you will get enough 
business at your company. Maybe you might have to move and leave all that you've known. Maybe your health is fading or your parents' health. Maybe you've had a death in the family. Or maybe you're also graduating from school and wondering what next. Or maybe you're concerned about the transition that this church is going through. Or maybe you're struggling with your faith or wondering what ministry or things that God would have you to be involved with in your life and you're not quite satisfied with where things are at in your life. Whatever the case might be, whatever struggle or situation you might be going through, the fact is we all struggle with issues throughout all of life and these issues do face us. And that's why I've subtitled this message, Trusting God When Your Head Is About to Be Cut Off by an Enemy King and in Our More Complicated Situations. <laughs> With a touch of irony there. Growing up, this story of King Hezekiah and God's mighty deliverance made a huge impact on me. Think of it. In one night, God delivered the good King Hezekiah who was trusting in him and praying to him by killing 185,000 evil, blaspheming soldiers without the help of any human. You know, it was stories like this that taught me that God was real and powerful and active and involved. Made me realize the immensity of the God that I served. And it made my little troubles seem a lot less of a problem for him to deal with. And it really inspired me to want to wholeheartedly serve and follow this holy, glorious God who would not tolerate sin and who protected and guided his people. And as we look at this story today in its context in the, in the book of Isaiah, I hope that it will really do the same for you and that it will give you something to meditate on and think about as you go from here, that it will really inspire and encourage you. And it will raise your view of God closer to where it ought to be, closer to where I should view him, and give you the confidence to trust him in whatever the circumstances you might be in right now, in the path and plan that God has for your life, so that you can follow him wherever he calls you, in whatever task he gives you, regardless of the obstacles. Now, for the sake of time, I only had Robert read uh, chapter 37 and a few verses from 36, but I do want to look at the whole narrative of King Hezekiah that's recorded here by Isaiah, and that goes from chapter 36 to 39. But obviously, with, with a larger section like this, I won't be able to look at every verse. But I do want us to see the overall uh, story and point that Isaiah is intending to bring out. And once we've seen that, I, I want to... Think about its relationship to our lives and the lessons that we should learn. So what is this story in its context? Many of you have studied Isaiah with our brother Gordon Graham over the years, so you'll probably remember that Isaiah has two major sections, chapters 1 through 39 and then 40 through 46. The first section focuses primarily on God's judgment of Israel and Judah and the surrounding countries. As you read through it, there's judgment after judgment that is listed there. Whereas the second section really moves beyond the judgment to words of encouragement and consolation with the promises of an amazing future world 
brought in by the messianic servant in the mighty power of God to do extraordinary things. And of course, you'll probably also remember that another major theme that can be seen in the book is the holiness and glory of God. 26 times throughout the book, God is called the Holy One of Israel. Likewise, you probably also remember Isaiah's commission in chapter 6, where he sees the glory of God and is cast down and says, Woe unto me, I am unclean and undone. And then God purified him with the coals to his lips, taken from the altar. God is holy and glorious. So then, how does this narrative section, in the midst of all these prophetic messages between God's judgment and God's consolation and comfort, fit in? Why is it here? As we look at the text and let it tell us, I should point out the uniqueness of this story. King Hezekiah's life is one of the very few stories in Scripture that is recorded three or more times. Uh, it's here in Isaiah 36-39. It's in Second Chronicles 29-32. through And it's also in Second Kings 18-20. through You also have that, of course, in the Gospels with, with Jesus and his life. And you also have it, if you remember, with the Damascus Road experience uh, with, with Saul uh, when he sees the, the Lord and the Lord stops him in his tracks. But other than that, you don't have too many narrative sections that are given at such great length recorded in Scripture. So it's an important story that God really wants us to hear and learn from. All right, to the story. Hezekiah becomes king, and from the three-chapter description in Second Chronicles uh, 29 through 31, we know that he began the most massive reform in the life of Judah's history. Uh, in, in their time since, since David. He reconsecrated the temple. He reinstituted Passover, which wasn't being kept. He demolished the pagan worship sites and the various altars that were scattered throughout the land. And if you remember, he also destroyed the bronze serpent called Nehushtan that um, Moses uh, had been commanded to make when the serpents were biting uh, the children of Israel in the wilderness and the people had begun to worship even that. So at this point, after 14 years of Hezekiah's faithfulness, the narrative here in Isaiah picks up in in chapter 36. I I do want to point out, though, as I mention uh, all the events that are recorded in in 2 Chronicles, that Isaiah doesn't particularly focus on all the details of those reforms very much. And that's probably because while they were very good and amazing, those reforms only delayed God's judgment that he had promised that he has been just talking about in all the previous chapters up to this point. And so it probably doesn't affect as much his particular overall message and the point he is trying to make. It's important to know uh, his past faithfulness, but um, we'll, we'll see more as we go further. All right, well, let's read again uh, verse 1 and 2 of chapter 36. Now, in the 14th year of King Hezekiah... Sennacherib, king of Assyria, came up against all the fortified cities of Judah and seized them. And the king of Assyria sent Rabshakeh from Lachish to Jerusalem to King Hezekiah with a large army. And he stood by the conduit of the upper pool on the highway of the Fuller's Field. So Sennacherib, with his Assyrian army, is on a rampage. He's destroyed pretty much 
all of Judah and is besieging the last cities. Now, at first, these verses might seem pretty straightforward, but Isaiah is actually setting us up for something a little bit deeper. Notice the odd way he takes time to describe exactly where these army officers stood. Let's turn real quickly over to Isaiah chapter 7, verses 1 through 4. Isaiah 7, 1 through 4. Now it came about in the days of Ahaz, the son of Jotham, this is Hezekiah's father, the son of Uzziah, king of Judah, that Rezin, the king of Aram, and Pekah, the son of Ramaliah, king of Israel, went up to Jerusalem to wage war against it, but could not conquer it. When it was reported to the house of David, saying, The Arameans have camped in Ephraim, his heart and the hearts of his people shook as the trees of the forest shake with the wind. Then the Lord said to Isaiah, Go out now to meet Ahaz, you and your son Shear Jashub, at the end of the conduit of the upper pool on the highway to the fuller's field, and say to him, Take care and be calm. Have no fear and do not be faint-hearted because of these two stubs of smoldering firebrands on account of the fierce anger of Rezin and Aram and the son of Remelia. King Ahaz was in a sim- somewhat similar situation, and the Lord promised him that Syria, not, not Assyria, a different kingdom, would not prevail. And then afterwards, if you read down, the Lord told him to ask for a sign that his words would come to pass as prophesied. But King Ahaz actually spurned the Lord and would not ask for a sign. And if you remember, it was then that the Lord ended up giving the, uh, the famous prophecy of the, the virgin birth in Isaiah 7.14. So by using this same location language that occurred with uh, Hezekiah's father, I think Isaiah is setting us up to remember the previous events and to remember his previous failure to trust and follow God in the sign that God gave. So the question that would then naturally arise, after all the prophecy of judgment that has come through the book on the nations, will Hezekiah be the same way as his father? Will he fail to trust in God? Will he too spurn God in time of need? And will this be the time of judgment that has been spoken of in those previous chapters? All right, let's turn back to chapter 36. Now, if we had time, we could go slowly through this chapter and see in detail how Sennacherib's um, army officers mock Hezekiah and the Lord that he is trusting in. For the sake of time, though, I would just like to point out a a few things that he he says to, to summarize it for us. And you'll see that in your notes or in the overhead. He says that, first of all, Hezekiah has no one to rely on who can deliver him. He says that in verses 5 and 6. And then he says, Hezekiah has offended God, Yahweh, by removing all the other altars around the country that people used to worship him from. Then he says that even if Assyria gave them a couple thousand horses to use in battle, there still would be no chance. They would easily be, be exterminated. And then number four, he says that, that God himself had sent Assyria against Judah. And then to finish it off, he said, the gods of the four previous countries, people that we went up against, could not save them. And the God of Judah will be no different. The Lord is not powerful enough to save Judah. So that chapter ends, and Hezekiah's officials come back to him with the news of what has been said. 
And we have the chapter that Robert read so well for us this morning with all those hard names. And with all that detail, with the message of King Sennacherib's men, with all of the reasons why Hezekiah should not trust in God and why he had nothing to hope in and why this situation was hopeless, we come to Hezekiah's response. Verse 1 tells us that he put on clothes of repentance and supplication and he went straight to the temple. In verse 2, he has his high officials send word to the prophet Isaiah to go to the Lord for help as well. And then what happens? Isaiah brings back word that God will intervene. He has heard the word spoken against him, and he will act. And Hezekiah doesn't need to fear. And then as the story moves on, we see that the general that was surrounding Jerusalem leaves when he heard that the king Sennacherib had moved to a different location to face another threat. But he takes extra care to send a letter to Hezekiah to reiterate that none of the gods of the other countries have saved them, and Hezekiah will likewise not be rescued, and he will be destroyed. Again, what does Hezekiah do when he gets this reiterated threat? He goes to the temple and prays, and in quite amazing prayer in verses 14 through 20, he declares the majesty of the one true living creator God, and he prays to him to rescue them for the Lord's glory. And what does God do? He delivers Hezekiah in Jerusalem, but first he sends a messenger or a message to Hezekiah, and in it he taunts Assyria and he explains that he has not been absent, but he's actually been guiding all the events that have occurred. He led Assyria down to conquer those nations. He gave them that ability and caused the weakness in their enemies. And now he has a plan for Israel's survival, now and in the coming years. And we see that from verses 21 to 35 the Lord's message back to Hezekiah. But in verse 30, we come back to that idea of a sign. Now, it's not a sign in the sense of, I'll do this now and you'll know by it that I will defeat Sennacherib in the future. And that's why, as you heard this morning, the Net Bible translate this as a reminder. And that's a good translation because that's how it's being used. But it's also important to realize that this is the same word that's being used under King Ahaz and another place here that we'll get to um, for sign of the Lord's, Lord's work. So it's, it's a little bit different kind of a sign. It's, re, it's rather a prophecy and a promise of how God will deliver them, and its fulfillment will be a reminder, a sign, an encouragement of God's faithfulness in fulfilling his word. And in a further sense, God's fulfilling of this would also give strong encouragement to trust God's word and the rest of what he was promising in the whole book of Isaiah. And this sign was that this year, well, God would take care of Sennacherib, but then this year they would eat the, the fruits of the ground from what, whenever was fell and just grew up again, and, and they would have enough to eat because they wouldn't have been able to plant and everything. The next year, again, likewise, they would survive by the remnants of that, and the year after that they would plant in peace and have abundant fruit and reward of the ground. Then we have one of those verses in Scripture that really ought to leave us dumbfounded for a minute. 
or longer. God delivers King Hezekiah and the remnant of Israel by killing 185,000 enemy soldiers. 185,000 lives are killed instantly by God to deliver Hezekiah and Jerusalem from their hopeless situation. 185,000 individual souls. And then later on, we, we see that his, Sennacherib's very own children kill him in the temple of his false god. There is only one true god who is in control of all things, and it's not the god of Sennacherib. It's Yahweh, the God of Israel. What a victory. But even as we ponder that deliverance and victory, a question perhaps would come maybe to our minds. Did all these people deserve to die? Did God have to do this? Why did God do this? And the answer really lies in that all sinners deserve that punishment. Our sin is rebellion against Almighty God. And rebellion against the Creator warrants that death, just as God warned Adam and Eve from the very beginning in the Garden of Eden. We all deserve this judgment, and it is only and purely by the grace and gift of God that any of us are given a second chance or have another second of life. And truly understanding what we deserve as sinners will really magnify what Jesus did on the cross in bearing our sin and punishment on himself, in conquering sin and death, and offering the free gift of eternal life to all and trust in him, and make it that much more amazing, because we all deserve that kind of judgment. And if this is still horrifying to us to think of this amazing loss of life, it might really be pointing out that we don't understand the depths and the awfulness of sin. And we may be still enamored with the pleasures of sin and the world's view of sin to truly see how evil, bad, wrong, disgusting, and unjust our rebellion against the good, holy, pure, just, almighty creator God really is. And it also might be pointing out that we're not appreciating the undeserved, amazing, gracious gift of God in the forgiveness of sin that we have in Jesus. But it's also not only for the sake of judgment that God did this, because by that same act of judgment, he brought deliverance to his people. And the same is true of God's judgment of Jesus on the cross. It was an amazing judgment here in Isaiah and an amazing deliverance, but even that much more was God's judgment on Jesus and our deliverance from sin. God takes sin very seriously. All right, well, moving along, though. Robert finished reading here at the end of chapter 37, but in Isaiah, the story continues for two more chapters. In chapter 38... We hear about Hezekiah becoming deathly sick and receiving a message from God that he was going to die. What does Hezekiah do this time? Again, he turns to prayer, and what does the Lord do? He gives him 15 more years to live, 
And the Lord also gives him a sign for proof that it will happen. Now, this is the other kind of sign. This is a proof that his promise will happen. And what does he have done? He has the sun move back on the sundial stairway of King Ahaz, ten steps. And a little irony there. Um, it, the sign was on the very steps that his father built, who would not believe in God and who would not take a sign from God. And God chose that to be the sign to, uh, to Hezekiah. And not only was it a sign that he would live and get better, but it was also a sign that God would defend Jerusalem from Assyria. So the uh, three things that I, I want you to especially notice from chapter 38 here is Hezekiah, one, Hezekiah's reaction when he got this calamity, when he was in this situation. He prayed. And also I want you to note that God took the time to give a miraculous sign as proof and confirmation with the Son. And that fits in with this continuing theme of sign that God is, and Isaiah is working through his text here. And then also a large part of this chapter is taken up with Hezekiah's response to the Lord's deliverance of his life. And that was a psalm in praising God. And that's a right response to calamity. Prayer and a right response to the signs and deliverance, the signs and wonders that God has done. Praise and trust. Then, continuing along, in chapter 39, we have the story of Hezekiah pridefully showing off. We're not given many details here, and we might wish to know more of the details surrounding it. But we do know, one, that Hezekiah was healed. We see that in the beginning of the chapter. And, and we know that subsequent to that, he was showing off the blessings that had been bestowed upon him. And that we know that the issue was pride. And, and uh, Second Chronicles go in, goes into it a little bit more, not rendering back according to what he had received to God. And then we see the strong judgment that was given in prophecy. The judgment was the prophecy that Babylon would take all of those possessions that he had just showed off and his very own descendants into captivity. Now, from Second Chronicles, we know that Hezekiah did repent from this, but that's not focused on here again. Judah will go into Babylonian captivity, and the future chapters of Isaiah assume that. And then it talks about God's future plans in light of that, and the comfort and consolation message that he is giving to them, and his amazing deliverance that will come. So this repentance, even though it's there, really doesn't change the big scheme of things in Isaiah's message. And although Hezekiah praised the Lord for the deliverance of his life, as we saw in the last chapter, and Isaiah takes pains to record that, it seems that somehow here he was not appropriately thanking God and praising him, giving him the credit in the eyes of the Babylonians, or in this case with his possessions and the ways God had blessed him. He was taking the praise of men for what God had done for himself. And so on this note, the narrative section ends and the second major section of Isaiah begins. All right, so how do we tie all these things together? This, this story maybe would raise a number of questions in, in our minds. We kind of looked at why would God just kill so many people without any human agency uh, like this? Or why is this story recorded so many times and in such detail? 
One, it must have been extremely important to rescue Hezekiah in Jerusalem in God's plan. And two, there must be some extremely important things that the people of God in all ages and times need to know. This whole story of Hezekiah in chapters 36 through 39 is a sign. Not only has a sign been given to Ahaz in chapter 7, and then two signs to Hezekiah, the one about the planting and the way God would preserve them, and then the, the sun moving back on the, on the stairway sundial. But God has also given strong confirmation through these things in this whole story, and this whole story is a sign that we can believe in God's word, and he will bring to pass what he has said. The promises and prophecies of judgment in all the chapters before it will come to pass, just as he has said. And all the succeeding chapters that talk about God's amazing work in restoring Israel and bringing them back from captivity, and God's amazing work through the Messiah, will come to pass. Why do we know this? We have an amazing incident here of God's amazing supernatural, miraculous work in the signs that he has given in the rescuing of Hezekiah and Jerusalem. If God is for us, who can be against us? If God has done this, he will faithfully keep all the rest of the words in the book of Isaiah, and it should move us to trust in him. It shows God's power to judge. It shows his power to bring about the redemption of Israel. And it gives a sign and a reminder for the people to hope on as they wait so that they too can trust like King Hezekiah. And this same God is orchestrating our history, our nations, our lives, and can deliver us, can judge us, and will bring the Lord Jesus in his second coming to judge all the world and deliver his people to heaven. And the question remains, as it was for them in their time, in the midst of their calamities, will we trust God and live in light of this reality of who he really is and the power that he has, and the attention to detail that he is taking in orchestrating all events? Or will we surrender to the overwhelming enemy all the things that realistically speaking, should cause us to doubt or to trust in our own strength? Or will we trust in God's plan even when we cannot see the light of day or how he could possibly do it? He will work it out, our lives, his plan for his glory, just like he did here in Hezekiah's time. It might be in a different way, but he will accomplish his plan. He is the living God who is active and involved in our lives. You know, in the stories that I mentioned at the beginning of the message that I kind of left hanging, or in the struggles of your lives that maybe only you know in your minds, the question is not whether God is powerful enough to see you through or to see me through, or whether he is involved. The question is, will we trust him? Did I trust him to work out what was best and work in all those situations that I faced? Are you trusting him 
to work out your situation? And then when He does work in our lives, when He does deliver, when He does bless, will we praise Him and give Him the glory? Or will we try to take it for ourselves? Am I taking the glory to myself and having finished schooling? Are you taking the glory to yourself for the ways He has blessed you or for the work that He has done in your life? We have nothing to boast in. Everything that we have has been given to us by God. And the provision and ability to accomplish anything that we have accomplished in our lives that is in any way good is by His grace and enabling. So this whole story is a sign. God is the most powerful. He is the one and only true and living God. He is active and involved in the lives of His people. So will we let this story fulfill its purpose and push us to trust in God in our situation? Now we might say, sure, yes, I'll trust Him. But then I might ask you, or you might ask yourself, well, what does that even mean? What does it mean to trust God in this situation? Well, what did it mean in Hezekiah's story, in his life? What did Hezekiah do when these situations arose? He ran to God in prayer, and he ran to ask for God's word. And God heard Hezekiah's tears, or saw his tears, rather, and he heard his prayers. Now, in the Sennacherib incident, And in his illness, Hezekiah was concerned about the glory of God and the honor of his name, and it explicitly mentions that. But in this last situation with the Babylonians, he was more concerned with himself. So as we pray and seek God, we need to be concerned about his glory and trust that he will work out our lives and our situation for his glory and our good. As another scripture says in Matthew 6.33, Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you, the things that we need. So we need to trust God for who he is and what he has done. God's given us these signs in scripture as an eternal reminder of who he is and what he has done and of how we need to respond. We can trust him. Now, I've got in your handout and and on the screen a few lessons from the chapters. And we don't have time to to spend much time here, but I just want to read through these. And I would encourage you to take time to think through and, and meditate on these lessons. This is an amazing story that is recorded three times in Scripture. God wants us to learn from it. And it matters in all of our lives because all of us are facing trials and, and struggles and will be challenged in whether we will trust God and move forward in obedience. So from chapter 36, we can see that trials and suffering come to the godly. Hezekiah was mocked and lies took place. Godly things that we have done will even be misinterpreted. Hezekiah had taken down the altars that were around, and they were misinterpreted as 
as against God, even though they were obedient to God. We will be tempted to not trust God, to give in, to give up. But like Hezekiah, we need to trust and hold fast. Then from lesson from chapter 37, we saw what was Hezekiah's response? In the day of trouble, praise him. I pray, rather. God is actively involved in our lives for his name's sake. God judges. God delivers. God directs events, even when we can't see it. Why did God take so much time to explain his actions of how he was orchestrating all of the events in that time? Probably as a reminder that even though we can't see it, he is directing events. From chapter 38, we can see, again, that when calamity occurs, seek seek the Lord. He does see our tears. He does hear our prayers. And then when God does bring deliverance, we ought to publicly praise him. God got me through school, and I can tell you, it was by his grace. Almost every semester, I was praying and asking the Lord, Lord, am I done now? But he got me through, because he wanted me to. He brought the finances, he brought the encouragement and strength through many of you over these last five years. And I praise him for that. He has been faithful. And then from chapter 39, we can see that using the blessings of God to magnify ourselves in pride is wrong. It is evil. It is sinful. And God judges it. He doesn't take it lightly. Our our mindset should be, God has blessed me. I do not deserve it. He is great. Not, I am great. What kind of blessings has God given us? Our spiritual gifts, our natural abilities, physical things that we own or have or have been entrusted to for temporary time, our health even, our families. All of these have been given as blessings from God. And we ought to praise Him for them. And then lastly, God hates pride. It's an attempt to rob glory from him and receive it for oneself. So in conclusion today, if you're here and you've never entrusted your whole life to God and asked Jesus to take away your sin on the basis of what he did on the cross and taking our punishment that we deserve on himself, then that's where you need to start entrusting God. If we continue on in our way, God will judge us. We will die and we will reap the punishment that we have sown in sinning against the eternal, almighty, holy God. And we will reap that in hell. Those are the facts, but there is a better way. Trust Jesus. And if you have trusted in Jesus for your salvation... Continue trusting Him. And let's encourage one another to continue trusting in Him for all of the comparatively little things that occur in this life. You will see Him face to face when He brings you home to Himself. He has delivered your soul. And He can and will deliver you in the trials of this earthly life. It is true that we will suffer if we live godly in this life, but He will carry us through. So let's trust Him. Let's move forward in obedience and let Him bring the glory 
to himself through us that he deserves. Let's pray. Lord, we are amazed by your work in history. At your deliverance, at your judgment, at the signs that you have given of the faithfulness of your word, and that you will bring those things to pass, and you have the power to bring it to pass. And we thank you that you have brought so many of these things to pass, and we pray that you would help us to follow King Hezekiah's example and to trust you, to run to you when we run into calamity. Lord, that the first thought and an action of our hearts and minds would be to pray to you, Lord. And Lord, I confess that sometimes that's not my first thought. Even this past week as things occurred, Lord, I, I think of doctors or situations or other ways of handling it, Lord, when my first thought should have been praying to you and trusting you. And I just pray that you would help me to grow in that and I pray that you would help my brothers and sisters in this. I thank you that we can trust you, that you are trustworthy. And I pray, Lord, that you would Help us not to stumble in taking credit to ourselves for things that belong only to you, your glory. Please help us to be faithful to you. Please help us to trust you. Please help us to encourage one another in you. And Lord, I pray that you would save any here who may not have given their lives and their sinfulness to you for cleansing and for life. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.